Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 322 of Forgotten Classics, where we are continuing with our hard-boiled noir, O Murderer Mine, featuring Doan and Carstairs, that crime-fighting duo. First, though, let me tell you about a couple of podcasts. Actually, I'm going to remind you of a couple of podcasts. Every year about this time, meaning October, the Halloween Haunter starts up. And that's a podcast that celebrates our creepiest holiday. They cover history, customs, traditions. They'll throw in spooky stories if they're short enough, poems. And so far, what has shown up is The Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Grim Reaper, and The Charlie Charlie Challenge, which I have not listened to yet, and I don't know what that is, so I'm going to learn something new. But anyway, I greatly enjoy it. It's only during October every year, but everything is always different. So if you try it and like it, go back to the previous years. There will be a lot of fun stuff to listen to. The other podcast is the Lost Cat Podcast, and I mentioned this last year when I discovered it, and I think it was maybe even a year old at that time, but it's twice a month, and it tells about the things that have happened to A.P. Clark while he's been looking for his lost cat. Now, for most people, this wouldn't be anything except frustrating or maybe sad if the cat's not coming home and he's not getting very close to the cat, but he lives in a neighborhood that makes me think of Welcome to Night Vale. Very, very odd inhabitants, very odd happenings. And so you're going to run into ghosts and witches and old ones and the end of the world. And there's always, though, red wine. And when there's red wine, which is usually in the middle of an episode, and these episodes are not that long, then there's a song and A.P. Clark sings the song. So clearly he started this up. Well, I don't know. He never says why he started it up. Clearly, it seems to me he started this up as a good way to promote his music, which I enjoy. But it also shows a great imagination, and I really love it. So I was really delighted to see that season two, which I think I remember reading about a Kickstarter for, has gotten started. Episode one is out there. And I found it through Facebook. He's got a Facebook page that I subscribe to, and he mentioned it. So I went and found it from his Libsyn.com feed. Now, I will link to that in the show notes, because as far as I can find, he is not on iTunes. So this one you have to go look for. But as I said, I find it to be great fun. So there are a couple of Halloween things for you to try out. Now... Wow, last week on Oh Murderer Mine, was that action-packed or what? Oh my gosh, I loved the fact that we're starting off with Doan trying to get a drink and having to outfox Carstairs, who just doesn't approve of people drinking. He has to be shut in the car. And then I really liked seeing them in action when they realized that there's somebody evil out there. And the way that, you know, Carstairs has this almost human intelligence. 
not quite human, but close enough. And Doan talks to him as if he is a human being. And together they make a great team. We're going to see that at least once more. I think once more is all during the book. But it's a wonderful action sequence that I just really enjoyed. And then, of course, we add to our cast of ridiculous characters with the policeman or the detective who hates Doan so much. And Carstairs, to be fair. So that was kind of interesting watching him try to frame him and frame him and frame him. And everybody's like, would you stop being a dumb cop and, you know, investigate what you're supposed to? And of course, I really, most of all, enjoyed Carstairs guarding Melissa. Air quotes around guarding. The fact that he's opening the fridge and trying to get food out and (laughs) sleeping in the bed with her, (laughs) all this stuff. So dog-like. And so manipulative. It was perfect. So I hope you enjoyed that also. This week, we're going to find out a little bit more about Heloise and Handsome Lover Boy. So let's dive in. Oh, Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis. Chapter 3. The students were beginning to stir when Melissa walked diagonally across the old quad with Carstairs tagging dutifully along behind her. The students gathered in cackling flocks or walked alone brooding upon the pitfalls in academic life, as is their wont. Strangers are apt to be disconcerted by their odd mannerisms, but Melissa was accustomed to them and knew that all they needed was to be ignored. Eric Trent was sitting on the front steps of Old Chem. He stood quickly when he saw Melissa and Carstairs, and then, realizing that they had already seen him, sat down again reluctantly and stared into space. Hello, said Melissa. How do you do? Trent said warily. I'm tired, Melissa told him. Will it distress you if I sit here on the steps? Not at all, said Trent. Carstairs sat down, too, and regarded Trent in a speculative way. He received no signs of recognition in return, and after a moment he snorted once, loudly, and then lay down and went to sleep. There was a prolonged and weighty silence, and then finally Trent said, I'm very sorry about last night, about your own experience, and about the death of your friend. Thanks, said Melissa. In regard to your apartment, Doan spoke to my wife about getting a larger one. He has to sleep on my Chesterfield, and he says it gives him bad dreams. My wife knows T. Ballard Bestwick. She arranged things with him. I had nothing to do with it at all. I didn't know anything about it. Doan can get himself a hotel room if he doesn't like my Chesterfield. That's very sweet of you, sweet and generous, Melissa said, and she looked at him with eyes that shone. Maybe you aren't a bad guy after all. That is, not as much of a dope as I believed you to be at first. After reading those sticky, icky things your wife said about you in her advertisements. However, before I can be sure, I'd like proof. What sort of proof? Proof of how really sweet and generous you are. For instance, if you gave me back my office as well as my apartment, then I could believe some very fine things of you. Practically any fine thing you wanted me to believe. 
Trent regarded her with a puzzled frown. There was guile in her face, but there was also sincerity. Well, he said in a relenting tone, well, but then he stopped relenting and lifted his chin with the air of a man who's been taken in by a female before and has no intention of being a two-time sucker. No, he said firmly, you don't need that particular office and I do. Huh, said Melissa. So that's the way it is, and I'll bet I know why. You think Doan would figure you for a sissy if you gave in to a woman. That's not so. It is, too. I know it is. Why do you put up with Doan anyway? I mean, tagging you around and sleeping on your Chesterfield and all that. There's no way I could prevent him from following me around. There's no law against it. So I thought I might as well make the best of it. As a matter of fact, I like Doan. He's very good company. He's very adaptable. If I want to talk, he listens. If I want to study or work or read, he goes to sleep. Apparently, he can sleep anytime, anywhere. Of course, there's always Carstairs. He's a bore. Carstairs mumbled to himself. Why don't you assert yourself? Melissa asked. I mean, why don't you tell Doan you'll sock him in the eye if he doesn't go away? Trent looked at her. Doan? That wouldn't have the slightest effect. He's not afraid of violence at all. In fact, I think he enjoys it. I think that's why Carstairs likes him. Everyone else is afraid of Carstairs. At least a little. Doan is not. Not a bit. Well, they're rather odd chaperones. I should think they'd cramp your style. They don't. I'm not interested in women. Is that a fact? said Melissa. Yes. Oh. A shaky voice said, Please. Trent and Melissa looked up. There was a girl standing on the walk in front of the steps facing them. She was wearing a plaid skirt and a red sweater, both turned inside out. She was wearing her left shoe on her right foot and her right shoe on her left foot. There was a circle painted in lipstick on one of her cheeks and a double cross drawn with an eyebrow pencil on the other. Her hair was drawn straight up from her head into a top knot and stiffened with soap or grease. She was holding a magazine in one hand and a fountain pen in the other. Please she said, staring at Trent with dilated eyes. Will you autograph this, this for me? She held out the magazine open to one of the Heloise of Hollywood ads. What? said Trent. Oh, please, said the girl. If you don't, they'll take me back to the house and paddle me on my bare skin. And they paddle awful hard. Who? said Trent incredulously. The girl rolled her eyes mutely to indicate a group of girls standing about twenty yards away. These were all normally dressed, that is, normally for girl students. They were watching with a sort of sly, breathless anticipation. What is the meaning of all this? Trent demanded. She's a pledge, said Melissa. This is Hell Week for sorority pledges. She's going through her initiation. They always make pledges do embarrassing things like this or worse. Let's see your pledge pin. She's a Delta Gamma. Go ahead and sign her ad. She really will get paddled unless you do. All right, said Trent. The girl handed him the pen and the magazine. Will you, 
she said, cringing. Will you sign it? Handsome lover boy. Trent made a strangling sound. Oh, go ahead, Melissa said. Give her a break. Trent was white around the nostrils, but he signed. Ah, creepers, said the girl, breathing again. Thanks a million, and I'm sorry. Trent handed her the magazine and the pen. Are any of your cute sorority sisters, any of the upperclassmen, taking meteorology? Why, yes, said the girl. Four or five of them. Tell them, said Trent, not to bother about studying or turning in any papers I assign, because every one of them is going to flunk my course. You mean it, said the girl. Oh, good, good. She ran back to the group of girls. They opened up to receive her giggling. The girl said something. The group stopped giggling. Their heads turned in unison in Trent's direction. They huddled and argued. They looked at Trent again. They turned around and walked away very soberly. The pledge, trailing behind, looked over her shoulder and leered gleefully. You cooled them off said Melissa. That house has been up before the Dean of Women once already this year for lousy grades. Are you really going to flunk them? Yes. They'll send a delegation of seniors to apologize to you tomorrow. They'll still flunk. They'll wail at the Dean of Women and probably at T. Ballard Bestwick. And they'll still flunk. You're a sort of determined character, said Melissa, and awfully touchy. You're entitled to think so, if you like. Now don't get mad, Melissa said. I know it's none of my business, but you can't blame me for being curious. What about? Well, you act sometimes like you have half good sense. You certainly knew what anyone intelligent would think about those ads. Why did you let your wife put them in all those magazines in the first place? I didn't let her. I didn't know she was doing it. You can read, can't you? Trent looked at her, exasperated. For the last four years, up until a few months ago, I was sitting on an ice pack in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. All my supplies and mail were delivered by jeep plane. I didn't order any women's magazines, and consequently, I never saw one. What on earth were you doing in the middle of the Arctic Ocean? That's where the weather makes up. The weather that affects the flying conditions on the Great Circle route through Alaska and Siberia. There were quite a few isolated weather stations around there. Oh, who was up there with you? One Aleut and two Eskimos. Males? Yes. I'm an anthropologist, Melissa said. I know what they use to cure the furs they wear. Did these use it? Yes. Ugh said Melissa. They must have been very sweet-smelling companions. I had the idea you'd only been married about two years. That's right. Well, how did you manage it? Do you know where Point Barrow is on the extreme northern tip of Alaska? I know now. Well, I came south to there from my station in the supply plane to get a tooth filled. There was a Navy Port Authority at the point, and a Navy dentist called on them once in a while. Heloise, my wife, was there at the time. What? What was she doing clear up there? 
It seems that in her cosmetics, she uses some very exotic materials of one sort and another. The juices from Arctic lichen and moss and walrus blubber and all that sort of thing. This stuff was collected at Point Barrow. She had a big batch of it there then. It was worth a lot of money, and the naval port commander refused to assign shipping space for it. She got passage on a transport plane. She has a great deal of influence, and went up to see about the matter. She was still arguing with the commander when I arrived. I see, said Melissa. How many white women were living at Point Barrow? At this time, she was the only one there. Hmm, said Melissa. You'd been up on that ice floe for two years before that? Yes. I see, said Melissa slowly. See what? Oh, nothing. Just a little matter I was curious about. Heloise is a very attractive-looking woman. Did I say she wasn't? Is she actually fifty-four? She doesn't look it. Not anyway after two years on an ice pack. That had nothing whatsoever to do with it. Well, all right. Don't be so huffy. I'm not arguing with you. What are you doing? Poking my nose in your business, Melissa admitted frankly. You can snub me now if you like. I can't snub everybody in the world. That's true enough. Can I ask you something else? I don't know of any way I can stop you. Well, said Melissa, isn't it true that when you got back here again and found out about those ads and sort of surveyed the rest of the feminine population? No. You don't even know what I was going to ask. I certainly do. Well, I'm not blaming you. Blaming me for what? For getting smart and walking out on her? I didn't. Oh, pooey said Melissa. She agreed to let you go peacefully if you'd lay low and let Doan keep tabs on you until she buried that handsome lover boy drool and started another advertising campaign. You know, said Trent, judging from your unconventional visitor last night, I should think you'd have enough troubles of your own to sort of keep you busy. I guess you're right. Melissa admitted. What happened after I ran you out of my apartment last night? Nothing, actually. I mean, they didn't find out anything except what Doan had already guessed. That Humphrey is so interested in getting something, it doesn't matter what, apparently, on Doan that he hardly has time for anything else. They went up to my apartment last night, and he and Doan both got drunk. The only change that rings in is that they argue more loudly. If you know who that prowler is, you're the only one who does or is likely to find out. Doan called your wife, didn't he? When he thought Humphrey would be likely to arrest him? Yes. She must really know a lot of influential men in these parts. No, she knows their wives. You've seen that enormous monstrosity of a beauty salon of hers out on Sunset Boulevard, haven't you? Her headquarters? That place is staffed like a battleship. She doesn't make any money out of it, even though the prices are something terrific. She keeps it for prestige. She lures motion picture stars into the place and fills them up with liquor. It's easy to get drunk in a steam cabinet. And then finagles free testimonials out of them. I don't think I'd like her. Nobody. I mean, perhaps not. I'd like to meet her, though. 
Trent said, If you ever do, and tell her that you know me, you're likely to get a reception that will surprise you. Why? Melissa asked. Never mind, just don't tell her. A new voice said, Hi, Melissa. Hello, Shirley, Melissa said. This girl was small and slim and dark, dainty as a new doll. She had very large, mildly vague brown eyes and black hair gathered into two thick braids that dangled forward over her shoulders and down over an attractively prominent chest. She was wearing a sloppy joe sweater with the sleeves pushed up and moccasins and a pair of blue denim jeans with three fountain pens in the right hip pocket. You look terrible, she said to Melissa. I heard about your prowler from Beulah Porter Cowes. That must have been a very interesting experience. Oh, it was. How did it make you feel? Now don't just tell me you were scared. I want to know specifically. Did you feel a tingling sensation in... Surely. Now stop it. I didn't feel any tinglings, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Well, why not? Just... Because, said Melissa flatly and finally, Shirley, this is Eric Trent, meteorology. This is Shirley Parker. She's a special doing graduate work for a master's in psychology. How do you do, said Trent. You're a handsome lover boy, said Shirley. And what if I am? Shirley shrugged. Now there's no point in reacting toward me in a hostile manner. The name is simply a word association picture with me. I don't feel any contempt toward you on account of it. Well, thanks very much, said Trent. Your attitude shows an obvious repression there. You ought to work it out. How do you feel when you approach your wife? What? You heard what I said. Wasn't the question clear? It's clear that it's none of your business. Oh, yes, it is. I'm writing a monograph on the subject. To get my master's, it's going to be published by the university press. I don't care to be in it. I wouldn't use your real name, Shirley assured him. You'd just be an anonymous case history. No, thanks, said Trent. You're not showing the scientific attitude. You're right, Trent agreed. <sighs> People make things very difficult for me, Shirley complained. I mean, they're all so stupidly touchy on the subject of sex. Hi, everybody, said Doan. He was wearing a brown tweed sport coat now and brown tweed slacks and a dark green sport shirt. Hello, Mr. Doan, said Melissa. How do you feel this morning? Trent asked. Not too bad, Doan told him. I mean, I'm breathing, I think. Two of our third floor neighbors complained this morning about the noise last night. Humphrey always talks that loud when he's drunk. You were doing all right in that line yourself. Self-defense, said Doan. You have to talk loud to Humphrey or else he won't pay any attention. He didn't anyway. Doan nodded. Humphrey is very stupid, I fear. Who's this here? Melissa said. Shirley, this is Mr. Doan. He's a detective. This is Shirley Parker, Mr. Doan. You're cuter than a bug's ear, said Doan. I know it, said Shirley. She's writing a monograph, Eric Trent warned, on sex. No, Shirley corrected. Sex comes into it just incidentally. It's on psychotherapy, psychosomatic therapy. That's nice, said Doan. I bet. 
Do you have a sex life? Shirley asked. Sure, said Doan, but it's private. That's the way everybody acts, Shirley said. She stared at Carstairs in a speculative way. What about him? He does very well, said Doan. He's different from most males. He gets paid for his services, and they're very much in demand. The owners of Lady Great Danes have to write months in advance to get an appointment with him. Would you mind changing the subject? Trent asked. Why? Doan asked. Sex is very interesting, and personally, I think it's here to stay. Hello, peoples, said Morales, coming out of the front door of old Cam and shaking the dust from a mop gently over them all. Nice day, no? Yes? Did you paint my office? Melissa demanded. Senorita, I have eight. Yes, I know. Just forget it. Senorita, if you had eight children, you would know that forgetting them is difficult. Not to say impossible. Ah, and how do you do, Senorita Shirley? Hello, said Shirley. Senorita Shirley, last night I had a very surprising experience. I don't want to hear about it. Senorita, this is a matter of immense scientific interest. How do you know? Senorita, when a man has eight children, he acquires a certain flair in this field which gives him superior judgment. I'm not interested, Shirley told him. Senorita, in my opinion, you are discriminating against me. I would bear it in silence except for the fact that my experiences are of enormous scientific value. Just regard the matter objectively, senorita. Incorporated in your book, my unparalleled performances would make your reputation. No doubt, said Shirley, but they're not going to be incorporated in my monograph, I mean. You're too disgustingly normal. Senorita, I resent that. Go ahead and resent. Morales glowered darkly. There is very little justice in this world, in my opinion. He hitched the mop up over his shoulder and marched back inside the building. Shirley looked at Doan. Did you ever kill anyone? I mean, either indirectly, by getting them hung, or directly, by doing your own dirty work. Both ways, Doan answered. Do you rationalize your sadism when you do? I mean, in the manner judges do, by claiming they're ridding society of a menace and all that stuff? No, said Doan. I do it because I get paid for it. It's nice work. I'm afraid you're normal, too. I'm sorry, Doan told her. Do you know many murderers? Hundreds. Are they paranoid or cycloid? It's my opinion that all of them are paranoid to some degree. What does that mean? They're paranoiacs, Shirley explained. It means they live in a subjective world of their own. They rationalize their destructive impulses by a cockeyed logic that has no relation to reality. Hitler was a marvelous one. I've never met a murderer who went in for it on such a big scale as he did, Doan said. Although I did run across a nice old female party who knocked off 20 people with nicotine distilled from bug spray. Ooh, were her victims all of one sex? Nope, 
Men, women, and children. She wasn't a bit choosy. Shirley nodded indifferently. Generalized transference of a subconscious repressed aggression. It's very common. Well, I'm going in and try to get something out of Professor Slay Minick. Oh, Shirley, said Melissa, leave him alone. You know you terrify the poor man with your questions so much you make him ill. It's good for him, said Shirley. He's got to work out those experiences, get them up and out in the open. He'll never get well if he keeps them seething in his subconscious the way they are. A fat shadow waddled out from the doorway, and on emerging into the sunlight, turned out to be Professor Slay Meinick himself. He blinked behind his heavy glasses, and then, settling his gaze on the group, standing and sitting on the steps, twisted around suddenly and looked as though he was going to scurry back from where he'd come. "'Just a minute, Professor,' Shirley Parker called to him. "'You're the very man I want to see. We were talking about abnormal psychology, about murderers, and—' The Professor threw up his hands. "'Oh, dear,' he said. Did you say murderers? Who's a murderer? I'm not a murderer, am I? I don't know any murderer. Or do I? Shirley tripped up the steps and patted Slay Minick on the shoulder. Now don't be alarmed, she told him. Our discussion was purely objective, no personalities involved. We were talking about murderers and sex. As you know, I'm writing a monograph, and in order to do it, I have to interview people and get material on their sex experiences. I wanted to ask you... If the professor had seemed startled before, now he looked positively horrified. Oh, dear, he said. Sex? Do I have any sex? What sex am I? Male, of course, and you're female. Oh, dear. The poor man retreated back into the building. Shirley had a grip on his elbow now, and she dragged along after him until they were both out of sight in the lobby. She's pretty, isn't she? Melissa asked. And how? Don't agreed. Is she married? Shirley? No, she doesn't believe in marriage. Is she a communist? Trent asked warily. Melissa laughed. Of course not. Shirley wouldn't go for anything as old hat as that. She's a philosophical anarchist. Oh, said Trent. Well, excuse me, I have a ten o'clock class. He looked to make sure Shirley was not in sight in the hall, and then went in and up the stairs. You know, Melissa said to Doan, he's not so bad after all. I mean, I thought he'd be an awfully icky sort of wolf until I got his side of the story. He's sort of cute and innocent, isn't he? Well, said Don, I suppose that all depends on your point of view. Don't let his face fool you. He gets mad quick, and when he does, it's not a good idea to be standing around within arm's reach of him. He's a judo expert, among other things, and he's hard as nails. Since I've been following him around, he's put away about 20 characters who made cracks of one sort or another to him about those Heloise ads. And so far... He hasn't even gotten his hair must. I talk soft and smile loud with him. I don't want him mad at me. Even Carstairs detours around him. That reminds me, said Melissa. Thank you just oodles for letting Carstairs stay with me. What did he do? Don inquired. It would take two hours to tell you, but right now you can have him back. Look, 
said Doan seriously. I know he's a pest, but I think you'd better keep him. He does have sense enough to guard you. Carstairs stood up. He looked levelly and coldly at Melissa and then at Doan. After he had done that, he went down the steps and along the walk about twenty paces, just out of earshot, and lay down on the grass. Hmm, it irritates him to have people discuss him, Don explained, because he can't talk back. Thank God. You better let him follow you around. Well, why? Look, said Don, there was a prowler in your apartment last night, remember? That was just an accident. I mean, that he was in my apartment. Do you think Frank Ames cut his own throat by accident? Melissa shivered. That's more like it said Doan. That bird was no hallucination, and he's no joke. He carries both a knife and a gun, and last night wasn't the first time he's used them. Who do you think he was? I don't know. Do you? No. Think back, Doan requested. Think of the way he looked, the way he moved. Have you got a mental picture? Yes. Could it have been a woman? What? said Melissa, staring. Humphrey had a hunch in that direction, and sometimes, by sheer accident, he gets a grip on an idea that makes sense. Do you think this prowler could have been a woman dressed up as a man? Melissa felt her jaw. No. That blow doesn't mean anything either way. Some women can hit mighty hard. It's just a matter of knowing how, not of strength. Keep thinking. Was there anything off-center or unusual about this party? Well, said Melissa, trying. Well, go ahead. Nothing I could put my finger on, but something about the way he moved. Something queer and strange and yet horribly familiar. Something sort of out of focus. How well do you know Beulah Porter Cowis? Oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm not, said Doan. I'm worried. I tell you, this is a very bad boy we're dealing with. He's got lots of confidence. He uses a twenty-two, which is a very light gun, but it doesn't really matter how big a hole you get punched in you if it's in a vulnerable place. Last night, he was shooting in the dark. He couldn't see his sights, and he couldn't have seen more of me than just a blur, and he shot awfully fast. But even at that, he would have hit me all three times if I hadn't moved in the wrong direction at just the right time. I'd hate to meet him when he could see well. You're scaring me now. I'm trying to. Think back again. What was he doing when you first saw him? It sounds silly, but he was looking at a pair of my stockings as though he'd never seen any before. He didn't take anything? No. What else did he disturb, besides your bureau or dresser or whatever? Nothing, just that one drawer. Yeah, said Doan absently. Are you really considering Beulah as a suspect? Doan frowned. I don't see how it could have been her. She had the time, all right. You were still unconscious when she turned up, and Trent thinks it was about seven or eight minutes after I started chasing but he was so busy dithering around over you, it might have been an hour for all he'd know. I made some experiments. In her apartment, with the door closed, it would be hard to hear a fire siren in your apartment. None of the other tenants heard you. 
We did, because your door was open and the hall funnels the sound. But if Beulah Porter Cowis has a stocking mask around, she's carrying it with her, along with an automatic and a knife, and that doesn't seem reasonable. She does have a pair of black leather gloves, though. Did you search her apartment? Sure. How'd you get in? The locks in that building are easy to pick. Of course, too, she could have circled around and gone in the front of the building after she shot at me. It's physically possible, but I don't believe she could have done it without Carstairs spotting her. Why don't you let Carstairs just sniff around until he locates whoever it was? Carstairs, Doan said. He's not that kind of dog. He can't smell any better than I do. He operates with his ears and his eyes. Look here, said Melissa. Why are you so interested in me and in my prowler? Why, Melissa, Doan chided. I love you. Did I forget to tell you? Pooh, said Melissa. We can't use that. Come on, I've cooperated. Now give. Doan said slowly, I noticed something I don't think Humphrey spotted. You know that directory in the lobby of the pavilion? The one that lists the names of the tenants opposite the number of the apartment each lives in? Well, the manager or someone had already put Trent's name opposite your apartment and yours opposite Trent's last night. You know, because Trent insists on exchanging apartments with you and I know all about who wants to exchange apartments and why. Oh, said Doan. Well, that Chesterfield and Trent's apartment is too damned short. Now, if you'd just let me sleep in that pull-down bed in your living room, I wouldn't care for that arrangement. Okay, said Doan. Just a minute here, said Melissa. Don't try to get off the subject. You're so concerned about this because you think, on account of the directory, that the prowler made a mistake in the apartments. You think he intended to get into Trent's apartment instead of mine. Yes, Doan admitted. And I think that's why he was staring at your stockings in such a dumbfounded way when you came in. He naturally didn't expect to find a drawer full of women's stuff in Trent's apartment. Well, what do you think he did expect to find? I don't know. That's what I'm worried about. This bird is no ordinary prowler, no garden variety of sneak thief. And anyway, Trent has no dough aside from a big gob of back navy pay which is in the bank. He hasn't got any Raja's rubies or any secret plans for atomic bombs. I can't figure out what the prowler was after, and why he was willing to go to such lengths to keep from being caught. I mean, look at it this way. Suppose I had caught him, or rather, suppose Frank Ames had. The prowler hadn't stolen a thing. All he could have possibly drawn would be a couple of years for breaking and entering. And yet he was willing, and ready, to commit murder to dodge that. It doesn't make sense. So you think it was a woman? <laughs> Doan grinned. Not for that reason. But sometimes they do funny things when they get bitten by the love bug and Trent is dynamite in that direction. Oh, ho, said Melissa suddenly. What now? Doan demanded warily. I'm just getting the drift of all these sly, snide questions of yours. I know who you're eyeing. Just relax now, Doan advised. I won't. You're thinking about somebody whose name starts with H and who hangs around in Hollywood. 
There's still a law against slander, Doan warned. Pooh! No wonder you're worried. You're afraid you might be guarding Trent against your own boss. You've got an evil mind, Melissa, Doan told her. Haven't I just... But it works, doesn't it? So Heloise is a crack shot with a pistol, is she? I don't know, said Doan, but she used to juggle knives. She did? Really? Where? In carnivals and at county fairs. How do you know? I investigated her. I always investigate the people who hire me. I want to know whether their checks are good. She must have millions. Maybe now, said Doan. But back in the 30s, there was a time when she was on the ropes financially. Her outfit nearly foundered under her. What happened? Her husband forged her name and misused a limited power of attorney to dribble all her assets into the stock market. Her husband? You mean another one? Has she been married before? Oh, yes, to a guy named Big Tub Tremaine. He was a spieler on a sick pitch. What does that mean? He sold medicines at carnivals and fairs, Kickapoo Joy Juice and Colonel Ouster's Calibrated Cure-All and stuff like that. Heloise was his come-on. She used to dress in spangled diapers and a necklace and juggle knives to attract a crowd so Big Tub could work them over. He was good at it from all accounts. What happened to him? He died. Aha, uh-huh, said Melissa. Mysteriously, I bet. Nope. He dunked himself in the drink of his own free will and accord, and right in front of about a hundred witnesses who were all chasing him to stop him. Why did he do that? Kill himself, I mean. <laughs> because he was smart, said Doan. He stole money from Heloise. That's just about as serious an offense as there is. If she could have laid hands on him, she'd have had him boiled in oil, or at the very least, drawn and quartered. Have you ever heard about the other guy who stole money from Heloise? No, said Melissa. I haven't heard. Tell me about the other guy. I've forgotten his name, but he worked for her as a bookkeeper. He figured out a complicated and what he thought was a foolproof system for rigging the books. He'd embezzled the magnificent sum of $1.76 when she got wise to him. And he was bonded. And Heloise forced the bonding company to prosecute, although they didn't want to. The court, however, threw the case out. They said stealing $1.76 was hardly a misdemeanor, much less a felony. Whereupon... Heloise decided to prosecute in her own way, not through the courts. Did she fire the fellow? No. She kept him on, raised his salary, in fact, so high that the poor guy's wife wouldn't let him quit. Heloise wanted him right under her thumb where she could torture him. But she didn't let him keep books any longer. She made him the manager of her complaint department. And if you want to live a life of hell and damnation... Just go get yourself a job in the complaint department of a cosmetics manufacturer. I can imagine, said Melissa. I wonder if you can, Doan told her. This poor ex-bookkeeper, with the sensitive soul you'll find in most embezzlers, had to take lip from women all over the United States and some foreign countries who'd bought Heloise of Hollywood's beauty preparations, 
and hadn't turned out as beautiful as the advertisements said they would. They stormed the poor guy by letter, telegram, telephone, and in person. All of them were mad, some of them madder. His nerves gave out. What finally happened to him? He went off his bat, which is what Heloise had counted on. They've got him stuck away now in a nut house somewhere in a room wallpapered with mattresses. The doctors say he'll never get any better. Ugh, said Melissa. This Heloise must be plenty tough. She is that, said Doan, but a good businesswoman. She built up her business all on her own, although she did and does use the sap bait big tub totter. He had nothing to do with the management of it. She supported him in relative luxury until he started giving her money to the stockbrokers. Where did he kill himself? At Ensenada. He dove off a fishing pier after loading himself down with most of the liquor in the nearest bar and bidding all the patrons a fond farewell. They just thought he was crocked. Until he actually did heave himself overboard, and then they had a hell of a time fishing him out again. When they did, he was deader than a kippered herring. I'd really like to see Heloise, Melissa said ruminatively. I mean, in person, she interests me. Is that a fact? Don inquired politely. Heloise interests you. Don't get funny. You'd better forget Trent. He's out of your league. Oh, is that so? I'm just telling you, Don said. I'm your friend. Ha! Huh. Now just think. Suppose, by some freak of chance, you did manage to land him. He looks just as good to other gals as he does to you, remember? I could handle that angle all right, and without hiring a detective to watch him. Does Heloise give her personal attention to that salon of hers on the strip? Yes, Don admitted, but if I were you, I wouldn't show up around there. I will if I please, and I think I please. Well, take Carstairs with you anyway. I can't. I haven't a car. It's against the law for dogs to ride on buses. Let him handle that situation. I've never yet run across a bus driver who could keep him off a bus or put him off once he got on. Carstairs. Carstairs raised his head languidly. Go with her, said Doan. Watch it. Carstairs lifted his upper lip and sneered at him in an elaborately bored way.